Welcome to International Podcast Month, or IPM. IPM 2019 is brought to you by our Indiegogo producers, Richard Kreutz-Landry, Robert Anderson, The Drinking and Screaming Podcast, The Ostium Network, Damian Sidlow, Max Kasparek, Aaron Keon, Kyle Decker, Rocky Lee, Ryan Bolter, and Neon Green Tiger. A very special thank you to all of our Indiegogo supporters and to the IPM organizational team. And now, on to the episode. Hey everyone, welcome to a very special episode of Burst Your Bubble for International Podcast Month. If you're new to the show, hi, we're excited to have you. Each episode of Burst Your Bubble looks at isms and phobias in pop culture, from racism in a TV show, to homophobia in a movie, to sexism in a song. And as you'll see, on days like today, episodes can also focus on all the isms and phobias hiding in one piece of pop culture. So thanks for listening to Burst Your Bubble, and I'm excited you're here for International Podcast Month. If you want to find out more, visit us at BurstYourBubblePodcast.com. And away we go. Airing from 1994 to 2004, Friends was an international TV sensation. It even inspired a haircut called The Rachel, with its short, bouncy layers. Yes, I too rocked The Rachel haircut, and so did my sisters, in 1999 or so. The show followed six friends. Chandler Bing, Phoebe Buffay, Monica Geller, Ross Geller, Rachel Green, and Joey Tribbiani. They were all 20-somethings, living in New York City, hanging out, going on dates, and drinking lots and lots of coffee on a big orange couch in their favorite spot. For many, friends felt like very relatable TV. This was just a group of people living their everyday lives. But look closer, and friends is a time capsule, showing how casual homophobia, Gender stereotypes, sexism, transphobia, and racism all sneak into society. I'm Morgan Jaffe, and this is Burst Your Bubble. When Friends first aired in September of 1994, America looked a whole lot different than how it looks today. The internet was still incredibly new. In 1994, the Times Mirror Center estimated that only 31% of all American households had a computer. And if you were one of the lucky people to have it, you had dial-up. People would smoke everywhere, in restaurants and bars and work. It was expected, and it was normal, and it was smoky. Getting your film photography developed in 24 hours was a luxury, and for most places, it still took the full 72 hours you can forget about instant selfies. And when you turned on the radio or listened to a tape, you'd hear new kids on the block and Selena and Ace of Bass. But don't let those pop hits fool you. Grunge was taking over mainstream music. And that's just the fun pop culture stuff, the nostalgia. It wasn't even until 1993 that female senators were allowed to wear pants on the Senate floor. 1994 also meant that Don't Ask, Don't Tell was signed into law. And the 1994 crime bill accelerated the U.S. prison system into a prison industrial complex. For better or worse, Friends was a reflection of what was going on at the time. And I imagine that's exactly why it feels like it didn't age well. So while today it's easy to see how and why Friends can feel problematic, luckily it's only because American beliefs and values have changed. This doesn't make it excusable or not wrong, but it's something to point out. And so the further we get away from its first air date in 1994 and its last air date in 2004, the less I can watch Friends. I know it was progressive for its time, but each passing year makes it feel less and less so. 
Because looking back on it now, and I didn't remember this until rewatching Friends for some reason, we are introduced to Ross, sad, lonely, and finding out that Carol moved her stuff out today. And why did she move out? Well, because she's a lesbian who has fallen in love with a woman named Susan. Ross's whole storyline starts with one big lesbian joke, and the show leans on that heavily in the first episode and most of the first and early seasons. And the lesbian jokes go on throughout all ten of the seasons, even as we hardly see Carol on screen, or even the son Ross has with her. And as you can imagine, there are plenty of stereotypes. This was Carol's favorite beer. <laughs> she always drank it out of the can. I, I should have known. <laughs> Ross, you remember Susan. How could I forget? Ross. <laughs> Hello, Susan. Good shake. Good shake. <laughs> hey, when did you and Susan meet Huey Lewis? Uh, that's our friend Tanya. <laughs> Of course it's your friend time. <laughs> when Carol and Susan tell Ross, We're getting married. There it goes. A laugh track. And Ross is certainly unhappy about it. As in, I now pronounce you wife and wife married? And I get it. It's his ex-wife. But a laugh track after we're getting married doesn't feel like the audience is supposed to be laughing at the situation for Ross, but laughing at Carol and Susan. That doesn't feel very supportive. But then I have to remind myself that Friends was one of the first TV shows to ever show a same-sex wedding. When the episode aired in 1996, New York did not recognize any marriage for LGBTQ couples, and that ruling wasn't overturned till 2008. But just for New York, marriage for LGBTQ couples wouldn't be legal across all of the United States till 2015. And so when Carol's parents refuse to attend her wedding, it's Ross who encourages her to go ahead and marry Susan. And it's Ross who walks her down the aisle, even if he has a hard time giving her away at the end. The problem with Ross and his homophobia is when the audience isn't laughing at him in his backward views, but laughing with him. All that being said, I think two things are worth remembering. One, Susan and Carol were actually based on real people, written by creators Marta Kaufman and David Crane as tribute to their best friends in New York City. And two, I think Ross is actually written to be homophobic, but oddly in a positive way. Yes, he's homophobic, but written in a way to show that he's an example of a larger American society and how the country, yes, uncomfortable, can and was changing their mind. Ross didn't have to be supportive of Carol. He didn't have to walk her down the aisle in the act of giving her away to Susan, but he did. And as their wedding starts, the officiant begins, You know, nothing makes God happier than when two people, any two people, come together in love. Friends, family, we're gathered here today to join Carol and Susan in holy matrimony. And did you hear the officiant's emphasis on any two people? Was that line truly for the fictional wedding guests or a nice reminder for primetime TV? Ross walking Carol down the aisle to give her away to Susan is a reminder that people can change their minds, that they can go from disgust and fear to acceptance and allyship. And all of this isn't to say that Ross is a golden boy of a character. No, no, no far from it. Actually, I think it's pretty safe to say that Ross is never truly supportive of the woman in his life. I mean, he's consistently an obsessive and jealous boyfriend to Rachel throughout the series, not to mention all of his girlfriends. And when Ross and Rachel break up and Ross dates another woman, he's visibly disgusted with her and dumps her when she shaves her head. Or how Ross started an I Hate Rachel Green Club in high school just because she wouldn't date him. 
And this but she should love me because I'm a nice guy shtick goes throughout the entire series. And it's not even just Ross's romantic partners, but all of the women in his life. When Ross finds out Chandler is dating Monica, he's absolutely furious, as if Chandler is taking advantage of his little sister, ignoring that Monica is an adult and that who she dates is her decision. And so, Ross tends to treat women like they're things and possessions, not like they're human beings. And maybe all of this is tied together in one terrible and badly wrapped bow. Ross is homophobic and treats women poorly. And then of course, there's the gender stereotypes. For example, there's the time Ross has a fit when he finds out that his son, Ben, has a new favorite toy. Here's my boy, and here's his Barbie. What's, uh, what's my boy doing with the Barbie? Ross spends the rest of the episode trying to get his son to play with a G.I. Joe. And while again you can argue that Ross is supposed to be a reflection of small-minded people, I will again remind you the problem with Ross is when the audience isn't laughing at him and his backward views, but laughing with him. And this doesn't just happen with Ross. When we think of Joey, we think of a macho guy who can sleep with any woman he wants. His catchphrase is, How you doing? He sees every woman as a challenge, a conquest. In the pilot episode, when Rachel shows up in Central Park, still in her white dress, fleeing her wedding, Joey doesn't care. He hits on her. And hey, you need anything, you can always come to Joey. Me and Chandler live right across the hall, and he's away a lot. Joey, stop hitting on her. It's her wedding day. What? Like there's a rule or something? When early in the first season, Ross laments that he's worried about dating anyone and how he's only been with Carol, Joey tells him, What are you talking about? One woman. That's like saying, there's only one flavor of ice cream for you. Let me tell you something, Ross. There's lots of flavors out there. There's Rocky Road and Cookie Dough and Bing, Cherry Vanilla. You can get them with Jimmy's or whipped cream. This is the best thing that ever happened to you. So yes, Joey treats each woman he meets like a new flavor of the day. Coffee, strawberry, rocky road. Think about it this way. When Joey first meets Monica, he strips down to nothing and poses for her because she asks if he wants some lemonade. And he thinks lemonade is a code word for sex. When Brooke Shields guest stars as Erica, a woman who doesn't realize Joey's a soap opera character and just thinks he's actually Dr. Drake Ramore, he goes along with it so that he can try and sleep with her. And Joey went looking for and found a female roommate just because he thought it would create a situation where it would be easier to have sex with her. He even keeps the apartment heat on at around 100 degrees, thinking it would make her walk around in her underwear. Joey's so consistently shown as a dumb womanizer who goes from woman to woman. This machismo becomes almost like a character trait for him, a badge of honor. And because of this, Joey becomes the butt of the joke whenever he shows that he likes more feminine things. There's a whole episode that makes fun of how he loves a shoulder bag, his friends all calling it a purse. But Joey's just happy because it can hold all of his food and snacks. But I hate how Joey still calls it a man bag. It's like when people say guy liner, or manscape, or man bun. As Amanda Montel writes in Word Slut, a feminist guide to taking back the English language, all that does is reinforce the idea that frivolous objects like makeup and handbags are for women. And it's conflicting, because I know this show is supportive of strong women, 
Monica always knew she wanted to be a chef, and she'll do anything to make that dream come true. Whether it's working in a poodle skirt with fake breasts and a blonde wig on roller skates, or opening her own catering business, eventually she gets to be head chef at one of the top restaurants in New York City, and she stays for her career even when Chandler gets transferred to Oklahoma. Rachel may have started the show as a spoiled little rich girl, but by the end she's a strong, independent woman. When Rachel gets pregnant, she decides to have the baby, regardless of whether or not the father will be involved. All that and she balances being a mom with her career. And of course there's Phoebe. She's the very definition of a free spirit, and she does what she wants, whenever she wants. And she doesn't care what people think. And Friends has plenty of moments that celebrates women's sexuality, allowing Monica, Rachel, and Phoebe to be just as sexually free as men. Admittedly, it almost wasn't. NBC executives were so worried about Monica having casual sex in the pilot that they asked a test audience if Monica was A, a slut, B, a whore, or C, a trollop. But the show's creators refused to keep Monica, any of the other female characters, or any of the other characters from having casual sex. In fact, there's an entire episode where Monica and Rachel fight over who gets the last condom in the apartment. Even today, some TV shows and movies don't show characters using condoms, but this episode of Friends made condom use the center of an entire episode. And there's another episode where Joey finds Rachel's erotic books. I'm not ashamed of my book. There's nothing wrong with a woman enjoying a little erotica. It's just a healthy expression of female sexuality, which, by the way, is something that you will never understand. And you know what? She's right. But even with all of these examples, it's hard to remember sometimes. And on top of that, I didn't even get through all the examples with Joey, and how when it's a main male lead portrayed as being feminine, well that's shown as a negative thing. In one episode, Joey teaches the building superintendent how to dance so that Rachel and Monica don't get evicted. I swear it makes sense in the episode. It's done as a trade. But Joey does them a favor, and yet Monica mocks him, asking, So how goes the dancing? Gay yet? <laughs> and again, this is a favor for her. And then in another episode, Joey needs new headshots for his acting gigs, and his photographer recommends that he gets his eyebrows waxed. When he brings it up to his friends, they make fun of him. Hey, uh, let me ask you guys something. I'll have a new headshots taken tomorrow, right? And the photographer said that she thinks I should have my eyebrows waxed. Is that weird for a guy? Well, it depends. On? On how far along he is in the sex change process. <laughs> and this isn't the only time that Friends shows being transgender as a negative thing. The biggest example is Chandler's parent, who he refers to as my dad and my gay dad. I had to look it up. Was the character that we always hear referred to as Chandler's dad a drag queen or a transgender woman? The options we always hear are my dad and my gay dad and Mr. Bing and Charles Bing and he or him. The only other option I have ever heard is Hell in a Handbasket, a nice little drag name pun on Hell in a Handbasket. In 2016, Marta Kaufman said in an interview with the Washington Post that, quote, his father's transgender meaning Chandler's father, so meaning Chandler's mother. And again, for me, the pronoun confusion continues. From here on out, I'm just going to say Chandler's mother, Helena. Because again, besides her dead name, the name she was given at birth and not necessarily her chosen name when she transitioned, and Helena Handbasket, again, which I'm pretty sure is her drag name, were never given another option. And let's be honest, it's because the character was created by a team of writers that had no understanding of trans people and identities in the 1990s. And that's what makes Friends even more problematic. 
and Helena just another easy and transphobic joke. And so this is her storyline. Chandler avoids Helena for years, always calling her dad and he. And Chandler originally had no intention of inviting Helena to the wedding. And this is because Chandler never accepted Helena or her identity. When we do see Helena on screen for the first time, it's when Chandler and Monica go to surprise her at her drag show stint in Las Vegas. It's also the only time we hear Chandler use the correct pronouns for Helena, calling her ma'am when he asks her to his wedding. The next time we see Helena is at Chandler and Monica's rehearsal dinner. And every line, every moment, everything, it's all followed by a laugh track. Monica's parents mistake Chandler's mother, Nora, for Helena, and Monica rushes them away. This is me. Here, these are my parents, um, Judy and Jack Geller. It's lovely to meet you. So, are you his mother or his father? Jack! <laughs> what? I've never seen one before. Yeah, there's Ross. Why don't you go talk to him? I didn't even have a chance to act as though I'm okay with it. It's something about that word act. Act instead of show. That's not where all the transphobic jokes end. Chandler awkwardly greets Helena, and Monica follows suit. Hello, all. Hi, Dad. Hi, Mr. Bing. Chandler's mom, Nora, still refers to Helena as Charles and uses he, him pronouns. Nora, Charles. And because people can be terrible, Nora also makes comments about Helena's genitalia. So great to see you both here. Yes. Although I think we may be seeing a little too much of some people. Aren't you a little old to be wearing a dress like that? Don't you have a little too much penis to be wearing a dress like that? Oh, my God. Y'all, trans men are men and trans women are women. Genitalia and surgery doesn't change that. That's my piece. Anyway, back to the show. And Rachel mistakes a completely random woman for Helena, simply because Rachel says, I don't know what he looks like. And Monica describes Helena as the man in the black dress. Rachel goes up to the wrong woman, and then this cringeworthy moment happens. Hi, I'm Rachel. I'm a friend of Monica and Chandler's. I'm Amanda. Oh, I get it. Uh, man, duh. <laughs> and I get it. The 1990s were a time when people didn't really understand what being transgender was, and many people are still learning. Representations of LGBTQ people in pop culture was still so rare. There was this secretness that surrounded everything, a shame that unfortunately for some still lingers. And you can tell Chandler is ashamed. He's ashamed of his transgender parent and he's ashamed when people mistake him for being gay, as if the LGBTQ queerness is something he can catch. That's why we see a gay panic joke every time Chandler and Joey hug just a little too long. And we see this whenever someone mistakes Chandler for being gay and he's offended. In one episode, Chandler and Ross become members of their college alumni website. When Ross annoys him, Chandler writes, Ross has sex with dinosaurs on Ross's page. And then the one-upping starts. In retaliation, Ross writes that Chandler is gay. The only way Chandler can figure out how to top this atrocity is by claiming Ross is dead, hit by a blimp. And I hear that I've been picking on Chandler here, but it's not just Chandler. In one episode, Ross and Rachel are looking for a nanny for their daughter, Emma. They find the most perfect nanny, a sweet, kind man named Sandy. But of course, Ross has an issue with a nanny who is a man, 
He even asks him if he's gay, refuses to hire him, and mocks him to his friends. I love him, I love him, I love him. Oh, come on, he's a guy. So, like, he's smart, he's qualified. Give me one good reason we shouldn't try him out. Because it's weird. <laughs> Why? What, what kind of job is that for a man? A nanny? I mean, it's like if a woman wanted to be... Yes. It's just another example of how Ross is homophobic and how he is so stuck in traditional gender norms that he ignores the perfect nanny just because he happens to be male. And the problem is always the same with friends. Is the audience laughing at Ross because he's uncomfortable when he shouldn't be? Or is it all nervous laughter with him? Ross just doesn't seem to see women's work as a viable option for a man. The female characters call him out on it. But again, who are we laughing with? Who are we laughing at? It's hard to say. In the same way Ross comes around to Carol's relationship, showing that he can change, and in theory so could anyone who isn't comfortable with LGBTQ people, Ross eventually comes to realize that not only is Sandy the best nanny for his daughter, but that he's uncomfortable because of his own issues of masculinity and past experiences with his father. Ross realizes that he's in the wrong here. So again, I guess it's a learning moment? And sure, I get that the show isn't full of outright slurs against the queer community and never literally says that members of the LGBTQ community are disgusting. But by making the idea that being queer or not conforming to traditional gender roles is a punchline certainly normalizes gay stereotypes and discrimination, no matter how small or big the action. And here's a big thing people have noticed about Friends for decades. While New York City is probably one of the most racially diverse cities in the United States, all of the main characters are white, nearly all of the supporting characters are white, and most of the background characters are white, too. That doesn't inherently mean that the TV show is racist, but sometimes it's not about verbalizing racist things. A lack of diversity in the representations that are missing can sometimes be just as telling. And yes, unfortunately that was the case for many network TV shows that first aired in the 1990s. Think Seinfeld, Frasier, and Will and & Grace. But I don't think that gives it the okay, or a pass. And so it becomes clear fairly quickly. One of the biggest problems with Friends is its casting. The only diversity the show seems to have is Joey as the stereotypical Italian, and Ross and Monica as Jewish. But they're all still white. There's also Rachel, who never actually says I'm Jewish or talks about holidays, but to me she feels coded as Jewish. She's from the same town as Ross and Monica, had a nose job after high school, and generally seems to fit into the spoiled Jewish-American princess stereotype. But she can also pass as a wasp, a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. So at the end of the day, she, and all of the Friends characters, have the privilege of being or passing as straight, white, middle-class people. I feel like the only true difference in diversity between any of the characters was their class. Chandler, Rachel, Monica, and Ross seemed to be from upper-middle-class families, the type of people who could afford ski trips and nose jobs. And in one episode, Monica's dad even buys her a Porsche to say that he loves her just as much as he loves Ross. And then you had Joey, who was from what appeared to be a working-class family with seven sisters, and Phoebe, who at one point in her life was homeless and living on the streets. But by the end of Friends, they all have upward mobility, secure jobs, and plenty of income. As always, yes, we get the American dream. But this limited class diversity and having an Italian and some Jews doesn't make up for everything. It's impossible to ignore. As a show, Friends is very, very, very white. 
and when there are people of color on Friends, they usually don't appear for more than a couple of episodes. There's Julie, Ross's Asian paleontologist girlfriend who we see for a couple of episodes, and things don't start out great with Julie. See, at the end of season one, Rachel realizes she's in love with Ross, and she goes to the airport to meet him at his gate and pick him up. Because this is a point in time where you can actually meet someone as they arrive at the airport, at their gate. But when Ross gets off the plane, he's not alone. He's there with another woman, Julie. Ross and Julie originally went to grad school together, and they reconnected on an archaeological dig trip in China. But Rachel doesn't know that. So when Rachel meets Julie, she assumes that she is from China. Even more embarrassing, Rachel assumes Julie doesn't speak English. She basically yells at her, slowly overpronouncing, Welcome to our country! And Julie yells back even more loudly, Thank you! I'm from New York! So at least the show points out the ridiculousness of Rachel and others who might have made that assumption. And then there are a bunch of incredibly minor black characters on the show. A waiter, a fireman, a neighbor, Ross's divorce lawyer, a self-defense teacher, a nurse, a guy working at a costume shop, and a boss here and there. But each of them had one line, maybe a couple more, and they weren't important to the storyline. The only truly reoccurring black character is Charlie, another one of Ross's girlfriends. We see her in season 9 and 10, and for a brief time she also dated Joey. She's also a paleontologist, so I guess Ross has a type. All of these seasons, and that's really all that stands out. You would think New York City was only full of white people. And remember, Friends ran from 1994 to 2004. According to the 2000 U.S. Census Bureau, yes, white was the majority race in New York City at the time. But coming in at only 44.7%, the next highest percentages of races were Latinx people at 27%, Black people at 26.6%, and Asian people at 9.9%. But where are they on Friends? And all of this feels important. It feels important to go back to shows, especially shows that society feels a whole ton of nostalgia for and to analyze them. It's fun to laugh at old jokes and bond with old friends, but it's also important to recognize the problems within a piece of pop culture, especially when they're problems that normalize and degrade and stereotype people. And all of this doesn't mean you can't still watch something and enjoy it, but it means that you should think about what kind of media you consumed and are consuming. What are the topics? What are the jokes? And what's done for laughs? Yes, now we're in a different time, a time when we have better representation in pop culture. Friends may have just been a cultural representation of cultural beliefs and attitudes in the late 1990s and early 2000s, but because of the way it represented LGBTQ topics, gender roles, class, and race, it also reinforced those same attitudes. And all I'm saying is next time you watch, well, that's something important to keep in mind. I'm Morgan Jaffe, and that was Burst Your Bubble. This episode was a special feature for International Podcast Month. You can find out more at internationalpodcastmonth.com. As always, thank you so much to Jeremy Ferris. Jeremy does the wonderful art for each episode. Head on over to burstyourbubblepodcast.com where you can see all the art, buy it as merch, and support the show, and check out today's script with all of its footnotes and sources. Again, that's all at burstyourbubblepodcast.com. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show, leave a review, and follow us on social media. Burst Your Bubble is released the second and fourth Thursday of the month. Subscribe to the show, and it'll be delivered to you wherever you listen to podcasts. As always, thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time.
and have a good one. The intro and outro music for all IPM episodes is Morning Dew by Liquid and used under a Creative Commons license. The link is in the show notes. You can support International Podcast Month via coffee or PayPal and by retweeting, sharing, and talking about the event using the IPM 2019 hashtag. Head on over to internationalpodcastmonth.com for the month-long blog and information on the event. International Podcast Month, celebrating creators, sharing listeners.